Warning. This episode of The Saucer Life contains clinical but possibly troubling descriptions of human mutilation cases. Listener discretion is advised. I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no shortage of guys named Bill. This is The Secret Grudges of Bill English. Bill English, the lost Bill, often forgotten in the shuffle between Bill Cooper, who was unforgettable, and Bill Moore, who was also unforgettable for reasons we'll be exploring in January. Bill English, who paralleled Bill Cooper in so many ways. Bill English, who found himself the target of Cooper's vicious attacks. Bill English, our subject for today. There are a lot of aspects of English's story that remain pretty consistent, and there's a relatively small selection of sources, many of which appeared on early bulletin board systems like Paranet. Exact dates of some of these statements are hard to determine, as documents were posted and reposted many times in different places. Further, and this is what irks me, when these posts are sort of thrown up on the web, people have often stripped out all the sort of BBS or Usenet headers and just put the text up, but those headers are usually the only place the date was on it. So we've done our best here to, at the very least, keep things in the correct order. So this is the way we're going to do this. We're going to reconstruct English's narrative from the totality of these sources rather than looking at the sources sort of in order of creation as we usually do, because for this subject, that's the approach that makes the most sense. Now, to set the stage a little bit and refresh your memories if necessary, much of the action in the story is going to take place in that late 80s, early 90s period, which saw the emergence of John Lear and Bob Lazar's claims of working at Area 51 or S4 or G2 or O64 or whatever other bingo card number you want to slap on it. Note, please do not email me correcting me about what numbers go with what letters on a bingo card. It was a joke. Not much of one, but that's what you get. Bill Cooper is going to be one of the big names at this time, and the Krill papers are going to hit the scene. The MJ-12 papers, which posited a secret group controlling UFO policy, were widely known about in the flying saucer community by this time, and, and the subject of much debate. Roswell is a thing. The abduction phenomenon is well-established and, by many in the field, is taken for granted as being one of the most important developments ever in the study of UFOs and UFO experiencers. Basically, the landscape doesn't look too different than it will in the 1990s and into the 21st century. So, where do we begin? We begin in the early 70s in Southeast Asia. English was a captain in the Green Berets, he said, and was assigned to a group that had to recover a B-52 bomber that had ended up in the jungle. Here, and I don't know the date of it, is English describing that incident on a radio program. A caller who knew his story had asked about it, and as you'll hear, the host thought it was a good question, too. Oh, good question. Thank you for calling. Well, when I had viewed the document, there were several photographs in there that I had taken while serving in Vietnam. Uh, There was uh, a B-52 bomber that had gone down in Laos, 
and I was part of a recovery team that was sent in to bring out survivors. Apparently, we learned later that the craft had been attacked by some sort of, of uh, object. There was no real clear uh, description of what the object was. When we came upon the craft, uh, it was in the jungle, and it had looked as though it had just been set there. Uh, there was no crash pattern. There was very little damage to the aircraft at all, uh, which was pretty unusual when you consider that uh, the size of a B-52 bomber and the fact that it was fully loaded with fuel and bombs. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, we gave it no credence because we didn't we didn't really understand uh, exactly what had taken place. We did comment on the fact that uh, there was very little damage and the fact that um, the vehicle or the the aircraft had been placed, it looked as though it had just been taken by a giant hand and set into the jungle. Uh, we very carefully blew one of the hatches open. The hatch, All the hatches on the craft were sealed. We went in and we found the crew still strapped in their safety harnesses. And uh, when we released them from their safety harnesses, we found that uh, many of them had been mutilated in the classic sense of the word, what we refer to as the classic sense of the word now. Uh, anuses had been cored out up to the colon. It looked as though a great big cookie cutter had been used just to bore them out. There was no blood within the craft, and with the type of wounds that were evident, you would think that there would be a lot of blood on the floors of the craft. Uh, skin was removed from necks and jaws. The bones were bleached white almost. Eyes were removed, genitalia was removed uh, with precise surgical uh, precision. What, what we thought at the time was that this was the work of Viet Cong because they were pretty, uh, pretty creative in the kind of stuff that they did, and it was fairly common. We found no survivors. We recovered the flight recorder from the aircraft and dog tags, and we took photographs. I took the photographs. And when we returned to our headquarters in Saigon, these uh, dog tags, photographs, and our report was turned into uh, into MACV headquarters. And that was the last we saw of it or even thought of it at that point. Uh, years later, while viewing the document, and I must admit that I based a lot of my report on the document on what I had viewed in those photographs uh, with regard to the probability rating. Uh, there were several... Uh, there were several other items in the report, and, and, and for the sake of time, I haven't, I haven't gone into a very deep description of everything, but there was quite a bit of stuff about human mutilations, uh, uh, abductions, relocation camps of, of people uh, who had had a close encounter of the third kind, or what was apparently a close encounter of the third kind and this type of thing. Wow. The, uh, the human mutilation angle here is interesting. In my research for this episode, I came across some some articles and, and things that suggest to me that there's long been some kind of, of sort of split or difference of opinion among some researchers about the degree to which human mutilations were occurring in relation to animal mutilation cases, whether to publicize them, how to investigate them, and so forth. English's story shows up as an example of human mutilation that I saw cited more than a few times. So, some other things. We'll get to the report he's discussing in a minute. But about that host, um, I want to take a minute to recognize the host of the radio show, a guy named Billy Goodman. Ah, yes, the footnote noise. Welcome back, old friend. 
Billy Goodman was a radio host who had a couple of different shows that dealt with uh, fringe topics and, and paranormal stuff. Billy Goodman's Thing was one, and the more common one, or the more commonly referenced one, was the Billy Goodman Happening. These were broadcast out of Las Vegas, and uh, back in the day, stations out west had massive signals, massive coverage. So at night, when this show was on, people across the, the entire trans-Mississippi west could listen in, and some people east of the Mississippi. All the big names of the time were on the show. Cooper, English, Lear, Lazar, you name it. He really was Art Bell before Art Bell became Art Bell, if that makes sense. By the way, we're absolutely going to be doing an episode on paranormal radio shows at some point, as soon as I can figure out how to not get sued by doing um, a show about paranormal radio. One of the best things about the Goodman shows were the callers, who often shared you know, top-secret information and were actually really well-informed about the scene at the time. Goodman died in 2009, and there are a number of his shows available on YouTube. Adam Gorightly wrote a nice article on him a while back, to which I've linked in the show notes. So, now this report that English mentions, this gets to the heart of English's claims. And have we ever gotten to the heart of anything so quickly on this show? Probably not. There are two documents that emerged in 1988, probably around the same time. The first was a situation report that English wrote, and the second was written by John Lear and was a transcription and sort of explanation of a conversation he had with English. English, in his situation report, lays out what happened, what he experienced, and this is sort of his claim to fame and how he gets started as being a fixture in the scene in the late 80s. While working as a data analyst for the United States Department of Defense Security Services Command at RAF Chicksands, England, I had the task of analyzing a copy of what was entitled Grudge Blue Book Report Number 13. Ostensibly, the government published Blue Book Reports Number 1 through Number 12 and Number 14 as the last report, but claims that it never, in fact, published a report number 13. Several years went by, with this being the pat excuse, until June of 1977 when the report came across my desk at Security Services with a disposition order to read and analyze. The report was an annotated version, with photographs and various scientific data reports on findings of research that was contained within the publication. Among the photographs were several of aliens that were being autopsied and some that appeared to be alive. Much of the data it contained dealt with the autopsy findings and a great deal of technological data. Much of the technological data dealt with the research performed on the recovered vehicles or spacecraft, and there was some mention of animal and human mutilation with the report of several incidents. In the recounting he gave to John Lear, English provided much more detailed information. Amazingly detailed information. Um, implausibly detailed information, considering that he, as far as I know, didn't actually have a copy of the document to hand and hadn't seen it since 1977. In box, diplomatic pouch under lock and key system. Lock had been opened, pouch was easily accessed. Standard diplomatic couriers pouch marked American Embassy Couriers contained pouch serial number JL327Delta. Inside a publication with red tape which indicated code red security precautions and an Air Force disposition form. Disposition form was standard white page copy. Title was Analysis Report. 
Further down was, analyze enclosed report under code red measures, give abstract breakdown and report on validity, observe all code red measures, analysis required immediately. Underneath were a series of dashes, then the letters NDF, then another series of dashes. Below that, lower left-hand corner, were the initials WGB. Publication was withdrawn from pouch. It measured approximately 8 by 11 inches with gray cover, heavily bound, paperback style similar to technical manuals. Across the center front it read, Grudge slash Blue Book Report number 13. It was dated 1953 to 1963. In the lower right-hand corner was AFSN 2246-3. In upper left-hand corner was the word annotated. Across the front upper right-hand corner to left-hand corner was red tape indicating code red security measures. Across the front was stamped in red ink, top secret need-to-know crypto clearance 14 required. Inside front cover, upper left-hand corner were handwritten notations in ink, which were blacked out by felt-tip pen. That was a long clip, I know, but I wanted you to get the feel for the kind of detail about this document that he provided to John Lair. I have a friend who uh, who may or may not have done some work on this show in the past and whose real name you will never know, but he occasionally sends me postal mail with um, envelopes that are marked up with all sorts of weird things like courier routing code followed by a string of 13 digits. And on the back, there's a sticker that says something like, have you checked your courier routing code and things like that. And I have a feeling that, that he and English apparently went to the same, you know, bizarre notation, documentation, correspondence school or something like that. So this report, according to English, went into detail on a number of cases, including several human mutilations like the one he had witnessed in the 1970s. This is a great example of one. I think this is a really fun story and uh, the location is going to play a role down the road report gave a clear indication of reports of human mutilations. Most notable was a case witnessed by Air Force personnel in which an Air Force Sergeant E-6 by the name of Jonathan P. Lovett, who was observed being taken captive aboard what appeared to be a UFO at the White Sands Missile Test Range in New Mexico. Subduction took place in March 1956 at about 0300 local and was witnessed by Major William Cunningham of the United States Air Force Missile Test Command near Holloman Air Force Base. Major Cunningham and Sergeant Levette were out in a field downrange from the launch sites looking for debris from a missile test when Sergeant Levette went over to the ridge of a small sand dune and was out of sight for a time. Major Cunningham heard Sergeant Levette scream in what was described as terror or agony. The Major, thinking the sergeant had been bitten by a snake or something, ran over the crest of the dune and saw the sergeant being dragged into what appeared to him and was described as being a silvery disc-like object which hovered in the air approximately 15 to 20 feet. Major Cunningham described what appeared to be a long snake-like object which was wrapped around the sergeant's legs and dragging him into the craft. Major Cunningham admittedly froze as the sergeant was dragged inside the disc and observed the disc going up into the sky very quickly. The search for Sergeant Lovette was continued for three days, at the end of which his nude body was found approximately ten miles downrange. The body had been mutilated, the tongue had been removed from the lower portion of the jaw, an incision had been made just under the tip of the chin and extended all the way back to the esophagus and larynx. He had been emasculated and his eyes had been removed. 
Also, his anus had been removed, and there were comments in the report on the apparent surgical skill of the removal of these items, including the genitalia. There was no sign of blood within the system. The initial autopsy report confirmed that the system had been drained of blood and that there was no vascular collapse due to death by bleeding. You know, I, I shouldn't poke fun at the, you know, mutated by aliens uh, out there, but when it just occurred to me, this isn't in any sort of script or outline I put together, when it said he had been he had been emasculated, the first thing that popped into my head are a bunch of, of, of sort of 50s housewife dressed aliens screaming at this poor guy you know why don't you make more money do you know how much my brother-in-law makes my sister has a much nicer house you are no good what are you even good for and just sort of just sort of emasculating this poor man i think um if i would have thought of that earlier that could have been a great sort of saucer fanfic theater sort of event the report also included photographs of alien creatures um and from the description, they were sort of the standard gray. There were also autopsy photos as uh, well, showing unidentifiable internal organs and a viscous green liquid that came from inside the creature. So where do we get these alien bodies? Well, English told Lear that there were dedicated groups in the military whose job was capturing UFOs. The report also indicated that there were a number of recovery teams that were activated specifically for the purpose of recovering any and all evidence of UFOs and UFO sightings. Most notably recorded in publication was what they called Recovery Team Alpha. It was reported that Alpha had been extremely active in a number of areas and on certain occasions had traveled outside the continental U.S. Alpha was based out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and was on the move constantly. Of course they were based at Wright-Patterson. Where else would you base your, your you know, crack UFO kidnapping team? Oh, another great thing about this. J. Allen Hynek of Project Blue Book knew all about the mutilations and everything and had signed off on the report but never spoke about it in public. In his 1988 situation report, English talked about how he confronted Hynek about this while they were both waiting to appear on a television program about UFOs in the early 1980s. Dr. Hynek and I sat in the green room for the better part of an hour while waiting for our appearance on the stage, and I asked him about the report and why it was that he and the government denied its existence. At first, he tried to tell me that I didn't know what I was talking about and told me not to bother him. It wasn't until I became angry and told him that I had seen report number 13 and analyzed it for the government while working for Air Force Security Services in England, and that his signed initials and signature was all over the damned thing, so not even to try denying it to me, that he finally admitted to its existence, but he also said that he would never admit it publicly and would call me a liar should I try to get him involved in anything. I asked him the standard question, why me? Why was I the one to have to analyze it and lose everything? His answer? Somebody had to do it. I think I like cynical bad guy Hynek better than the one who actually existed. Later on, English released a more thorough and complete version of his story, with more detail than the 1988 document, and that, along with the 1988 report, will help guide this retelling. In that document, entitled The Grudge Blue Book Incident, English presents a very important caveat very early on in the document. I would 
would point out that since my public announcement of this material, I have publicly said that there is the distinct possibility that the material was fraudulent and that it was intended that I see it in order to spread misinformation. I would point out further that I do not claim that this material is the gospel truth and that everyone should start gathering in their families and animals because the world is about to end, unlike some others that I know are currently on the speaking circuit. Whatever I might think of his claims, I respect his self-awareness in at least recognizing that. So after seeing this material, this Grudge Blue Book 13 report, English was summoned by Colonel Robert Black, the Air Force officer commanding the, uh, the listening post station there at RAF Chicksands. English was relieved of his duties and sent back to the U.S. Sadly, he was forced to leave behind his wife and family who remained in the U.K., he told the story at the 1989 MUFON conference in Las Vegas. As a result of viewing that document, as I digress a little bit, I lost a wife and two kids. I reported to work as I normally do at Security Services Command at RIF Chick Sands. I was immediately told to report to the base commander's office on base, which I did, where I met Colonel Robert Black, then base commander at RIF Chick Sands. Colonel Black called me into his office and informed me that I was being discharged from my job and that I was being deported from the country as undesirable element. No explanation, no reason, that was it. It took me several months after my return to the United States to finally determine what had happened. I was not allowed to say goodbye to my wife or children who remained in England, who remained at RAF Chicksands for another five years where she taught school at the RAF Chicksands Dependent School. I have not seen my wife and sons in 12 years. I have not heard from them in two years. I have discovered ultimately that she was transferred to another Air Force base in England where she teaches school still. I was not allowed to communicate with her in any way, shape, or form. I was not allowed to tell her what was going on, why it was going on. I did discover later that she had been told that I just walked in and quit and left the country and left her. It's not true. It's not true, but that's what she was told. And any woman in her right mind who's left high and dry with two kids to take care of is going to think the worst, and that's understandable. Ultimately, after about 10 years, I divorced my wife, feeling that there was no way I could possibly salvage a marriage. And then after such a long separation, she had changed and I had changed, and I decided it was time to get on with my life. Ultimately, two years ago, I married a very wonderful lady with two kids of her own. I'm quite happy, and it looks like this marriage will last a long time. I hope it will, because she's about the only person I know that can put up with my shenanigans. She deserves a lot of credit, and I'd like you to know that she supports me, and I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today without her support. Well, all's well that ends well. Also, that clip was actually, in reality, twice as long as what you actually heard. I edited out a lot of long, sort of awkward emotional silences and as much of the crying baby as I could, which leads me to question to you, who takes their baby to the 1989 MUFON conference in Las Vegas? Come on, that's just, that's lousy parenting. We'll be back in a second. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, including the uh, the newly released second season of Hellier, which I am a huge fan of, uh, and support us with your love offerings at saucerlife.com. 
a special holiday season thank you to those who have contributed to the financial upkeep of the show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. If you would like to address an envelope with the proper courier routing code, you can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The feedback for our Helen Mitchell fan fiction was overwhelmingly positive. You'll definitely be hearing some more content along those lines in the future. In a couple weeks, actually, Christmas Day, if you're listening to these in real time, we'll be having the uh, Saucer Life Variety Showcase with a whole variety of things that are lighthearted yet poignant for all of your holiday season saucer needs and moods. And yes, all of this may backfire spectacularly. So Bill English gets deported. After he gets back to the States, he works at a Waffle House for a while. He claimed that he was offered a job as a BBC cameraman back in the UK, but the offer was mysteriously withdrawn. And just an aside, I have my doubts about that based on what I know about hiring and union rules in the UK, especially in the early 80s or late 70s and early 80s, and especially at the BBC at the time, not to mention the visa and immigration hassles. And there's no indication that he was, he'd ever been a cameraman of any sort. Why? It's, it's okay. No snark, no debunking. He ends up working as a security guard at Pima Community College, where he sees a lecture by Stanton Friedman. The lecture was probably called Flying Saucers Are Real, because they all were, because Stanton Friedman was the man. Afterward, he talks to Friedman and tells him about the Blue Book 13 report he saw and was, quote, whisked away by Stan and Jim Lorenzen to the APRO offices, end quote. While he admits that Lorenzen thought he was, quote, nuttier than a fruitcake, he was allowed to do research in the APRO files, and he begins to see that the UFO cover-up was deeper than he imagined. He does some investigations for APRO, including being the point man in the Cash Landrum case, as we talked about back in our Weekly World News episode a few months ago. It's during this time as well that he's subject to a number of assassination attempts. He summed these up during the 1989 MUFON talk. During the last 12 years, there have been over 15 attempts on my life. I have been shot at. I've been stabbed. I've been blown up. I've contracted food poisoning. All the little things that are geared to look like nice little accidents. I'm not sure how being blown up is a little thing that looks like an accident. Um, maybe he was being sarcastic, but it sounded like with the food poisoning thing, he was saying they were really subtle about the assassination attempts. And then they blew me up. Actually, some of the specific examples he provides in the 1988 document don't sound very subtle at all. One of them was in 1980, and this is wild. He gets a phone call out of the blue from Colonel Black, the guy who had fired him from his Air Force job. Black shows up in the Southwest, and English, Black, and a sergeant go to White Sands Missile Base, where that abduction and mutilation had occurred back in the day. And they're there to look into a rumored UFO crash. And it doesn't go well. As I was walking in front of the van, Black and the sergeant were riding in it, following me with the headlights on so that I wouldn't step on anything without seeing it first. 
It was there that I heard a familiar sound that instinctively made me scream, INCOMING! and hit the dirt face first without even thinking. It was an incoming rocket that hit the van, blowing it up and killing the two of them. There can be no mistake that they were killed, as there was absolutely nothing left of the van except debris. At this point, after assessing the situation quickly, I took off in a westerly direction, not wanting to be the next on the hit parade. For the next several days, I avoided helicopters and what appeared to be search parties traveling only at night until I made it off the range and onto a highway where I hitchhiked back to Tucson and ultimately to the home of Wendell Stevens. When I arrived at Wendell's, I told him everything that had taken place and got him to drive me to a girlfriend's house where he dropped me off a couple blocks away. It was then that I determined that they, whoever they were, knew who I was and where I was at. It was time to disappear. Yes, that's the same Wendell Stevens we met last week. So, I don't know about this, but following this, English goes on the run, ending up in California, working at various restaurants, and living in what he calls, these are his words, not mine, just his words, not mine. He's living in what he calls, quote, a halfway house for gays, end quote. Since he was apparently well-known, I guess, as a heterosexual, no one thought to look for him there. He eventually moves to Virginia, uh, to his mother's farm, because when you're on the run from the feds, going to your mom's house is the best plan. He eventually moves out, moves from place to place in Virginia, and there's another very subtle, very low-key attempt on his life. From that point on, until my re-emergence into the public eye in September of 1998, there's not a great deal to tell other than on two occasions I was once again made aware of how precarious my position was when someone unloaded several thousand rounds of machine gun fire into the home I was living in, in a small town in Virginia, and when one tried to run over me on the streets of Lynchburg. Twice. Although he would stay out of the UFO field, or, or try to, through the efforts of John Lear, he was encouraged to come back and to tell his story, which was disseminated at conferences and in documents and reports such as the ones we've been talking about. So also, in that 1988 report, he explains that his journey to make the truth known has been helped by those who have shared similar stories, like a man named Bill, another guy named Bill, from California who served in the Navy during the 1970s. Once again, time has proven to be an ally in that evidence has come to light over the past several years that has substantiated everything I initially said about my viewing of Report Number 13. In addition, one other person, William M. Cooper, formerly of the United States Naval Intelligence Section, has come forward and admitted viewing an earlier version of the Grudge Blue Book Report Number 13. With the exception of some minor differences that are explainable by the fact that the copy I saw was an annotated version, Mr. Cooper's and my comparison match almost perfectly, and I might add that Bill Cooper and I were talking about all of this long before we knew that either existed. While Cooper saw his version of the documents in the early 70s while working with the Pacific Fleet, I saw my version of the very same documents while in the employ of the U.S. Air Force Security Services Command at RAF Chicksands in England in the mid-70s. I, however, was the first to speak out publicly when I attended a lecture given by one Stanton Friedman, a nuclear scientist, who at the time was devoted to finding the truth about UFOs and the possible implications of their existence. Cooper didn't leave English hanging. He claimed that he had seen the same Blue Book Report 13 that English had, and they seemed to be on friendly terms. In his book, Behold a Pale Horse, which we've covered um, at least once, Cooper reprinted a letter he had received from Bill English on June 7th, 1989. Dear Bill, 
I thought I'd write a letter and let you know that I have indeed received your most recent upload, and as per your request, all record has been removed from the board and all other copies in my files have been deleted. It's powerful stuff, and I hope that those in attendance will be open enough to at least consider the possibilities, if not the realities, of what you're talking about. I was extremely impressed with your most recent speech and go on record that my research pretty much confirms what yours has. It is interesting that we have managed to keep our collective butts in one piece over the past several years. However, that is something that could well be remedied very shortly if we don't take certain precautions. In point of fact, a great deal of pressure is being brought to bear on a number of people, most notably yourself and Bill Steinman. I had spoken with Steinman in person when he came to Alamogordo to see me, and we discussed the possibility of writing a book together. It was about three weeks after that that I received a call from him. When he called, he sounded very frightened and said that he was leaving UFO investigation permanently, and suggested that I do the same. He would not give me any clear reason, but he made clear that he was in fear of his life and that of his family. His loss to the field will be felt deeply, but were I he, I suppose that I would do the same thing. Unfortunately, I cannot place myself in his position, as much as I would like to at times. The rumor concerning your death was obviously premature, and when I received the information, I wasn't exactly sure it was true at the time, but I felt I should take precautions and went and got a gun to carry just in case. Needless to say, I was greatly relieved to find out that it wasn't true. When and if we have the opportunity to get together in person and in private, I will be glad to explain the exact circumstances of your reported demise. In the meantime, don't believe everything that you might hear. It seems the rumor mill is going full steam at this point. If there's anything that I can do to help you, please let me know. I still look forward to the possibility of us going to that seminar tour that you proposed. Keep me abreast of that situation if you would. Take care. Kind regards to you and your family. Sincerely, Bill English. The Bill Steinman, William Steinman he refers to, was the co-author with, he's everywhere, isn't he, Wendell Stevens, of a book about a supposed UFO crash at Aztec, New Mexico. Um... It's not a well-regarded book in some circles. If you want to know more about the Aztec crash, um, I will tell you this. I hate it. Um, I, I hate that case. It's so annoying, but it's also fun. Way back in the archives, the first bonus encounter we ever did, I think, was a talk I gave at the 50th anniversary of the Shag Harbor crash in Canada. And at that celebration, I gave a, a talk on, on saucer crash stories, and I talk about Aztec there. So dig back in the archives if you want more of Aztec. But that's who Bill Steinman was. So the good relationship between Cooper and English continued through the seminal, controversial, notorious 1989 MUFON conference where they both spoke. But then there was a falling out. And... Let's be honest, with Bill Cooper involved, there's always going to be a falling out for some reason or another. In a newsletter called Pegasus, um, it was the newsletter of Euphonet. No, I never figured out what it stood for. English um, was associated with this Euphonet organization with the Pegasus newsletter. And in that, we see the following notice published in October, October 2nd, uh, 1989. Cooper, bad news for Euphonet. It is with great sadness that we announce that Mr. Bill Cooper has been removed from the Board of Review of the Euphonet News and Information Service. Although Euphonet supports freedom of speech and the tenets of the Constitution of the United States, it will not support the spreading of lies and misinformation to the public. 
especially when it concerns other members of the UFANET Board of Review and or prominent members of the ufological community. Mr. Cooper began to spread the rumor that on his return from the MUFON conference in Las Vegas, Bill English was fired upon by unknown assailants. This is not true. UFANET wishes Mr. Cooper the best in his endeavors, but will not tolerate this activity from any of its members. We deal in facts, not fiction. Little Billy Cooper telling stories again. From what I've read, and I haven't found the clip, uh, Cooper would go on Billy Goodman's show and call English an alcoholic, which is, that's Olympic levels of projection there. And things would escalate. On one of English's appearances with Billy Goodman, a caller wanted to know if English had some sort of problem or issue with Cooper, and this was what happened. Yes, we do have a beef, and unfortunately, I am not allowed to say anything at this point because the matter is in my attorney's hands, and he is dealing with it. Okay, that's it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but uh, you have uh, now told the entire uh, West Coast and probably the rest of the world when they, by the time the audio cassettes get out there all over the world that you do have a uh, problem with Bill Cooper. Yes, I do. And you want that known, obviously, because you just said it. <laughs> uh, you know that uh, Bill Cooper is probably uh, uh, one of the uh, best-liked guests on The Happening. I, I, I'm aware of that. I mean, he has called in and, and been with us from the beginning. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say, uh, but a lot of things you said tonight are very similar to what he has said. Yes, I'm aware of that. What, what, so, you know, what, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, what happened here? What, what do you think happened? Well, uh... Can you give us some background? There it comes across your desk. Uh, what year did it come across your desk? It came across my desk in 1977. Uh, okay. Uh, the latter part of uh, June of 1977. Okay, and Bill Cooper, I think, says he saw his papers... In 1972. In, yeah, in the early 70s. Right. Um, what do you attribute that to? Well, uh, I, I have to I have to walk very carefully in this territory oh, okay. at this point. All be, right. be aware of that. All right. And it's not that I'm trying to avoid the issue. It's just at this point, mm -hmm. uh, because of my attorney's advice. It's in litigation. I understand that. But I, what I'm trying to just say is, yeah. if they were there in the early 70s, then you saw them in the later 70s. I saw him in the mid-70s. Mid-70s. Right. Uh, then a lot of other people have uh, saw them before you saw them, too. That's, uh, that's entirely possible. Yeah, right. That's entirely possible. However, um, I will point out that I've been telling the same story since 1977, and um, Mr. Cooper apparently has only been on the scene for not quite two years, two and a half years at this point. Oh, I see. Okay. He's relatively new to it, then. Uh, yeah. I greatly enjoy English desperately trying not to annoy his lawyers by calling Cooper a fraud, while at the same time, Billy Goodman is desperately trying to salvage some scrap of the reputation of his most prominent guest. This is, this is radio chess right here. English would also, in 1991, take an opportunity to call out Cooper's errors regarding the infamous Krill Papers. During the past several weeks, there have been a number of questions concerning the infamous Krill Papers. 
I'm posting this information concerning the documents in question. The Krill papers were and are a fraud. John Lear and John Grace of Nevada authored these papers and uploaded them to a Paranet board to see just how gullible the UFO community really was. It was quickly determined that the documents were in fact fraudulent. As a result of this, both John Lear and John Grace were barred from Paranet and other UFO-related echoes. While I don't agree with the methods employed by John, I do understand his reasoning for this. In one respect, the fraud perpetrated by John Lear and John Grace had the effect of proving that at least one so-called researcher of some renown was, in fact, a fraud himself. I am, of course, referring to William Cooper. Both bills would drift away from the UFO field and both would, in time, reemerge in the world of right-wing militias, Cooper in Arizona, English in New Mexico. Now, this is where we get our final face-off between Bill English and Bill Cooper. Cooper, or technically CAGI, the Citizens Agency for Joint Intelligence, which was part of the Second Continental Army of the Republic, which was a militia that I'm pretty sure only Cooper was a member of, um, they had produced an, an article that was an expose about Bill English, or something like that. Following that, English responded with a denunciation by Cooper, or denunciation of Cooper, rather, and then Cooper responded to the response with a sentence-by-sentence rebuttal of English's statement on the January 11th, 1999 episode of The Hour of the Time, his radio show. Um, Here is the the article that uh, sets English off. Um, that Cooper, or I'm sorry, the Citizens Agency on Joint Intelligence had written. Kaji News Service exclusive, January 4th, 1999. The commander of the 2nd Continental Army of the Republic announced yesterday that it appears the New Mexico Citizens Regulated Militia has been infiltrated at the highest level by an agent provocateur of the New World Order. The commander announced that the intelligence service is named Lieutenant General William S. English, commanding officer of the New Mexico Citizens Regulated Militia Southern Command, quote, a man whose allegiance is in serious question, a proponent of the artificial extraterrestrial threat designed to further world government and, according to the United States Army, a total fraud, as far as his purported military history is concerned, end quote. William S. English claims to have been a Special Forces Captain in the United States Army who served in Vietnam. English claimed to have inspected a downed B-52 bomber in which he found the mutilated bodies of the crew whom he claimed had been mutilated by alien beings who caused the plane to crash in the jungle of Vietnam. English also claims to have worked in England as an information analyst for the National Security Agency, where he was given to read and analyze a document entitled Project Blue Book Report No. 13. He claims the report was a government compilation of information covering the subject of extraterrestrial interaction with the human race and the United States government. English is closely involved with CIA agent John Lear, Air Force Intelligence Officer Major John Grace, CIA operative Vicki Cooper Ecker, and the fraud known as Donald Francis Ecker III, Research Director of UFO Magazine. Vicki Ecker was recruited after she was nabbed by the government turning state's evidence against her employer, the Mayflower Madam. Don Ecker is another person connected with euphology that has claimed a completely fraudulent background. The Intelligence Service report reveals that Mr. English has claimed U.S. Army history, Special Forces affiliation, Vietnam experiences, and NSA affiliation in England appear to be fabrications. 
According to the United States Army, William S. English was an enlisted man whose Army job code was Cook. The Army states that he was never an officer or a member of Special Forces. The National Security Agency reports that English was never employed by the NSA in any capacity. There's no evidence that William English has ever visited England. Which is, you know, ironic because his last name is English, right? So the episode where Cooper responds to to English's rebuttal of this report is basically what you just heard. English knew John Lear. John Lear is a CIA agent. The Eckers who run UFO Magazine are really working for the CIA, and Vicki Cooper Ecker used to work for the Mayflower Madam. If you're old enough to remember the Mayflower Madam, um, join me in the social security line in uh, about 20 years. So what are we to make of Bill English and his claims? Well, Jacques Vallée, in his book Revelations, summed up the conundrums of the stories of people like Bill English and Bill Cooper, for that matter, in this way. I'm not questioning the good faith of their testimony. The documents in question may have been nothing more than fabrications designed by their superiors to test their abilities to screen disinformation. Both of them had clerical functions in an intelligence organization at the time. It would have been only natural to test their degree of gullibility and their analytical skill by thrusting under their noses a document that mixed some elements of reality with some preposterous claims. If that was the case, they certainly did not pass the test. Bill English, in fact, was dismissed from his intelligence job shortly after the incident, a dismissal that is now offered by the believers as further proof that the information was genuine. I lean towards the view that these men are sincerely convinced that what they say is the absolute truth. The urgency with which they wanted to communicate it skips over such niceties as facts, controls, and hypotheses. They sincerely believe they know the truth, the simple, horrible truth. And that sense of urgency is incredibly contagious at all levels of our society. I think that's a fair-minded way to put it. Bill English is still out there. Kurt Collins interviewed him a while back about the Cash Landrum case and stated that though English won't go into detail, he still stands by his grudge Blue Book 13 report and story about that. One of our people here at the show, a guy named Jack Shepard, who helps out with some research from time to time, found Bill English on Facebook and asked me if I wanted to ask him some questions. I did. And Jack has reached out to Bill English for some insight into his role in this period of saucer history. As of the moment of recording this, we have not had a response from Bill English. If and when we do, we'll let you know. In the meantime, I'll say this. I like Bill English's story better than all the others that emerged from the English Lear Cooper constellation. From the beginning, English was at least cognizant of the fact that this could have been a disinformation effort. He had engaged in actual UFO research before coming forward with his story. He seemed to have a more genuine interest in the phenomenon. That doesn't mean that I believe him, obviously, but it does mean that I think that what he experienced may be valuable to examine. It's a saucer life worth looking at more deeply. Links to available reference materials are in the show notes. We return on Christmas, December 25, with the Flying Saucer Variety Showcase. We appreciate the background information and material provided for this episode by friends of the show Adam Gorightly and Jack Brewer of the UFO Trail website at ufotrail.blogspot.com. We also, I guess we should, welcome our new 
It's a very UFO magazine title that he wanted. Director of Research here at The Saucer Life, Jack Shepard. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Until next time, keep watching the skies. Happy holidays. And remember, the skies will keep watching you. Okay, it's Santa. Santa is watching you. <laughs>